Uh, well, tonight we're continuing in the book of 1 John, if you didn't get that from our reading. We're in chapter 2, and um, as we start, I, I want to mention something that is probably familiar to most of you, and it's the phrase that God is love. God is love. I think if you are a Christian or if you've been coming to church for any amount of time or been in some sort of circle, maybe you grew up in a church or you grew up in a family that, that knew God, um, a common phrase to hear, a common concept to have presented is that God is love. And it's true. It's written all over the pages of this thing, but it's actually only in 1 John that those explicit words are said. God is love. All throughout this thing, though, we get that story. We get that reality that God is love. From, from the stories that it tells, the people that it talks about, the, the actions of people, even nature itself, the grand narrative of the whole thing, it all conveys this truth that God is love. And there are a lot of people who have different ideas, different interpretations of that concept. God is love. Because it's a very important thing, it's a very big thing, but it's actually quite broad, right? Especially using our English language. You know, love is ambiguous in ways, that word. God is love. So what does it mean? Some of the ideas that people have, some of the things that people would talk about to explain that God is love are beneficial to us. They are beneficial to the church. It helps us illuminate or communicate the, the world, to the world, more of who God is. But there are other answers to that question that would be not beneficial. That would actually be inaccurate to the truth. They'd be a misrepresentation of God as he truly is. My point is, in a world full of sin-steeped minds and hearts. We're going to encounter ideas that are contrary to God himself, even among the community of believers, even within the church. And so how do we discern what is right? How do we navigate that? To go back to God is love, which is an overarching theme throughout this whole thing, but especially this book of 1 John. That is like the theme. It does not mean that God and love are exactly the same thing. Any more than saying God is light means that God and light are the same thing. But it still means something. It means something more than just God loves or that God is loving. Love is not just one of God's behaviors or characteristics. Love is the defining attribute of God. It is an ultimate quality that must always be taken into account. Always be taken into account whenever you think of him, whenever you consider him, whenever you look at what he's done in this world. Love is defined by who God is and not the other way around. So love is the motive for everything that God says and does. The harsh words, as well as the gentle ones. The acts of judgment and punishment, as well as the acts of salvation and mercy. And I think for some of you in the room, even the prayer requests that we got on the wall, the confessions, it's hard to hear that. God is loving. That might be the very thing you wrestle with. Is he? Could he be? I don't know. You wrestle with it. How could he be loving when I was given the family that I was given? How could he be loving when I experienced such pain in my life or continue to suffer with sins that I just can't seem to kick? How could he be loving yet leave me so lonely. He is loving. He is love itself. And he loves you. He loves you. 
He sees your suffering and he mourns with you. He is heavy hearted at the consequences of sin that you have had to labor under, especially those consequences of a broken world that are not of your fault at all. He mourns with you. And he has a plan in place to redeem it, to restore you. Sometimes it's hard because he's oddly patient. But I've mentioned this before. It's so interesting. The first word in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. It's the first definition, the first word given as as it's defined there. Maybe you're crushed by your shame for the sin that so, you so easily engage with and, and seem to not be able to, to unengage with, that has literally like entangled you and pulling you back like chains, the things you just can't break out of. And he knows the burden of your temptation. Jesus knows it. He knows it. And even bigger, he knows your shame. He knows your shame like we don't, (laughs) like we can't even fathom because he bore it. He took all our shame on that cross. He knows your shame. He knows what it's like to be under the shame of the sin you can't get rid of. He's with you in it. And he says, don't give up. Don't give up because I haven't given up on you and we can do this together. He sees you living in longing for the joy of friendship and belonging. And he offers his hand and he summons his church to engage with each other, to engage with each other. As Pastor Dick Thompson, who's on staff here, uh, has said, Jesus secures us unto risk. He secures us unto risk. It's like the words of that song, come on, come on, church. Be who you are. Be who you are. Be the family of God. Reach out to one another. Care for one another. Invest in each other. If you feel isolated, or if you don't, join God in extending hospitality of heart to someone else. And surely, 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 in time, the spirit that is in you will call forth from others the spirit of brotherhood that he has put in them. Risk it. Risk it for the biscuit. That's a saying, right? That's funny. Risk it for friendship. Risk it for family. Risk it for the sake of the church, being the church. Biscuits are good. I had biscuit for breakfast. Eggs and things. Anyone? Eggs and things? Yeah. Their biscuits are... Actually, I take it back. I did not. My wife did. I did not eat any, <laughs> ate any of the biscuit. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Talk about one flesh. <laughs> Talk about one flesh. That's a good line. <laughs> what a good joke. She ate it, and I enjoyed it. Okay. Man, God is love. God is love. Amen? Amen. Everything he does and seeks to accomplish is in and through and by his love. Coming back to 1 John here. The specific uh, implication John sets up in this book that he wants us to take home, that he wants his readers to take home, is this. That if God is love, then love is the sign and source of a true relationship with God. If God is love, then love is the sign and source of a true relationship with him. That's what this book, 1 John, speaks to. That's the overarching theme through it all. And it does so because in the day that uh, these, he is to the, in the day and to the people he was writing to, there were other ideas circulating around the churches that were contrary to this statement. There were ideas and concepts and people that did not illuminate more of God. Rather, for those who received them, those ideas, and the people who taught those ideas, 
that for the people who received them, it obscured God all the more from their minds and from their hearts, and, and, it, and it, it multiplies, not just for them, but then for others, that if they don't see the church being the church, loving one another, then they go, whoa, I don't want part of that. And people miss out on the God that we're meant to reflect. And that's what was happening in this place. So these people, they needed an anchor, a mooring to which they could hold tight while gliding through the wind and waves of false teaching. Because it was false teaching. It was ideas that was corrupting the witness of the church. If God is love, then, the, then love is the sign and source of a true relationship with him. Our passage tonight speaks of false teachings. It speaks of the ones that they were navigating, and it gives some info about it, and we're going to talk through it. We're going to walk through it. But my prayer for all of us tonight as we go through this, for myself, is that we will all, all of us, will be spurred on by the love of God to navigate the conflict of our lives, the conflict in our world, the conflict in our church with a resolute relationship with him and with love for one another. That we would love him wholeheartedly and love others and that no matter, even within this place, we would, we would approach the things that have harmed us, that have hurt us. We would approach all of it with a love for God and with a love for others. He starts at the beginning of our passage here. 1 John chapter 2, we're starting at verse 18. At the very beginning he writes this. Dear children, this is the last hour. So, okay, last hour. Let's stop there for a moment. He's talking about the final age. They were all waiting for the day that Jesus would come back in authority, in absolute authority, and he would assert himself in a way that he would be able to bring all the things that cr cripple us to our knees in mourning and make us question, can God really be loving? And Jesus, there's a day in which Jesus is going to come back and he's going to go, I made it right. <laughs> And that hour, that last hour, that age that these people were in that he's speaking to, we're still in it. We're still longing and waiting for that day to come back. God is patient. He's patient in bringing it, but it's because of his love that more may come into a relationship with him, that more may be spared the fear of that judgment and choose him freely. He is patient. So we're in that final age, that last hour, just like they are. Continues. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many, many, many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know it is the last hour. Okay, Antichrist. This term, we're going to hang out here for a bit. Antichrist is that which opposes Jesus' authority, his kingdom. That which is anti-Jesus the Christ. That is Antichrist. And for, the con for some context here, the scriptures do speak of one ultimate embodiment of all that opposes Christ and his kingdom. And that ultimate Antichrist will one day come only to be overthrown by Jesus. But what John is saying here is the spirit of that Antichrist is already manifesting in destructive ways in our world and in their churches. There are other terms John could have used here, but I believe he used this one on purpose. The Antichrist. This is so, so important because the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself, is not just a guy. He's not just a guy. He is God incarnate. Like he is perfect, the perfect manifestation of love and justice, and mercy, and righteousness. He is salvation, and forgiveness, and self-sacrifice, and joy, and hope. To be anti-Christ is not to oppose a guy, but to oppose all that the Christ represents and manifests. To oppose God himself. To adapt Philippians 4 here, I'll, I'll say it this way, we'll read it this way. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, it is defined in God and expressed in Jesus perfectly. To be antichrist is to undermine all that he is and gives. All that he is and gives. Jesus is the king. He's the king. He's in charge. His kingdom, just like every other kingdom, is wherever his authority is honored and wherever he has dominion, wherever he's in charge. Well, you know what's awesome, though? He's a humble king. He's humble. He has not forced his kingdom upon us. He he has not forced his authority upon us. He has not forced his values. He has not forced his reign upon our lives, but has given us the freedom. He has loved us with a will. He has given us the freedom to reject him or receive him. He's given us the choice for now. The choice is ours. And he is a loving king who longs for us to freely choose him and return his love. As Christians, if you are a Christian, if you say you've put your faith in Jesus, if you walk with that moniker Christian, praise the Lord that you do. <laughs> As Christians, are, are, you are a child of God, a child of the King. And we are the ones who have made the choice and continue to make the choice that our lives, our bodies, our hearts would be under his dominion. That wherever your two feet stand on this earth, there his kingdom is. There his kingdom is. His authority will be honored And all that he is will be manifest wherever we plant ourselves because he's the king over us. And so we're in his kingdom. We're under his kingdom. We're not just a soul. We are a body as well and a mind and emotions. We're the complete package and not one part of us is divorced from another. And not one part of us is free outside of his dominion. Freedom in every realm of your life, in every aspect of who you are, is found in the kingdom, under the king. The king who brings freedom, who brings life. Wherever these two feet stand on earth, wherever your two feet, wherever your butt sits, (laughs) there is the kingdom. If Jesus is king, if he is Lord of your life, which, by the way, if you ever didn't add that up, that's, that's what's going on there. I made Jesus Lord of my life. You've made him king. The idea is that the kingdom is strapped to your heels. It's strapped to your heart, your mind, to your emotions, and wherever you go, his love and mercy and justice and compassion and joy and hope and life and power will follow in your wake. You know, earlier uh, last week, I was on uh, the campus of Pepperdine. Anyone go to Pepperdine? Woo! All right. Well, I was hanging out at Pepperdine with a couple of new friends, and we were talking about the love of God and, and to, to love him wholeheartedly and then be filled with his love, to, to understand his love. And, and as we were talking, this like idea came to mind, and I'm thankful for these sorts of things because it helps when then I have to preach. So I think we often think of the kingdom of God, especially ourselves within it. Like we're this, uh, think of this table covered in like solo cups, why not? And they're all pushed up next to each other. And, and, And the kingdom of God, the love of God, all that God is, is poured into us like water. You're a cup getting poured into. And we think of it as if God has to keep pouring, keep pouring. And it's not until that cup is full all the way to the top perfect, complete, that then it overflows and impacts the other cups. That's not the kingdom of God. It's more like, get this, I like this, sponges. 
Think of a table full of sponges all pushed up next to each other. Just one drop, just one ounce of water poured, dripped on a sponge will saturate that sponge. Even if it's subtle, it will saturate it. And not just it, but all the sponges around it. That's the kingdom of God in your life. That every drip, every ounce, every bit of his kingdom, of his love, of his authority that is manifest in your life doesn't just stay with you. It permeates all of you and then spreads out into the people around you so that everybody gets saturated in the kingdom of God. And even if you smear it across the table, there'll be like these streaks of God's kingdom left behind for people to soak up. It's not about perfection. It's about willingness. He receives us as we are, and he is so generous to then just pour into us and just pour into us whatever we'll receive. And that impacts others. It impacts others. To pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to call for more of his authority, more of his reign, more of his love to find footing on this earth through me, through you. And that's not just for your good, but for the good of the world, for the good of your friends, for the good of your family, for the good of the people you haven't even met yet, for the good of that random lady at the grocery store who's just really talkative. kingdom is not this building. You are the kingdom. And it goes with you wherever you go. And to whoever you're with. Our longing that we are called into is for the world to be saturated with the knowledge of God as king. And every bit of our life that we relinquish to him brings more of the king, of the things that the king desires and loves and is about into this world. So the Antichrist, as it's used here in this passage, is the spirit and practices of those people who undermine God's kingdom being manifest in this world. The Antichrist spirit is seen in those people who use their God-given authority and creativity to push against the kingdom of God rather than invite it. The early church, the early church who this letter was written to, first century, like our churches today, was burdened by individuals who viewed preaching and teaching as a way to promote their own ideas. It was profitable for their pride to win people to their own ideas, even if it did not align with the reality of who God is. And man, I got to tell you, I have to be sincere. That is a threat to me. And I have to take it seriously. I just want to say that as your pastor and let you know I take that seriously. I don't want that to be me for your sake. So these people would come and they would combine and they still do to this day their personal beliefs or philosophical pretense with Christian truth and distort the clear teaching of Jesus and the apostles into something that is familiar but altogether different. We see it today. We see it today in any number of the fad philosophies of our day that conscript Jesus and the word of God to accomplish their own will and their own agenda not the king's. Jesus warns his followers in Matthew 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. So I just want to lay out just four ideas, four possible ways in which we might see false teaching. And the first is this. You got the heretic who boldly tampers with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as it says in 1 Jude. The one who corrupts 
the thing, who adds to it that which should not be added, that in some way distorts the truth of God, the reality of God in a way that makes it not God at all. Because anything that's different than he is is not him, right? The second is the charlatan who uses their spiritual, spiritual, this should be like this, spiritual authority to line their pockets. Prosperity, prosperity gospel, I think we know that, we've seen that. Maybe fallen for it. And you got the speculator who grows weary of old truths and so pursues respectability through originality, winning the favor of the culture at large with fine-sounding adaptations of the gospel that are no gospel at all. And of course, the proud, whose insecurities cripple the church as they grab for power and notoriety to soothe them. They contradict the very words they speak with their own lives. And to be real, so do I. I'm a sinner. I'm imperfect. But I think and I lean on Jesus that the difference is that I come before him and I say, Lord, forgive me and let me not do that anymore. Let, show me what is not of you and I want it to be corrected. I want it to be changed. I want to be your son who is guided with the rod and the staff. <laughs> Jesus' words, right? Beware of false prophets. You will recognize them by their fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Let's get back to 1 John here. Okay, let's go to verse 19. So we're marching through it. He continues like this. They, those false teachers, the Antichrist, uh, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for they had if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So he's saying here, like, look, there were people who belonged to the physical, visible church who weren't really a part of it. These were people who were masquerading as Christians while leading others away from Christ. These people... They brought with them confusion and division and all sorts of things that were not of Jesus. Their fruit was rotten. And it had a massive impact on that community. It was destructive and contentious and it bred all sorts of conflict. Historically, we know that the Gnostic philosophy was an active and significant thorn in the side of the early church. And the Gnostic philosophy is rooted in, in dualism, in dualism, like, like the, that existence is made up of incompatible and opposite forces. And that there's no gray area between them. These forces are, are matter, matter and spirit, <laughs> evil and good, darkness and light. And in such a dualistic mindset, like I said, there's no overlapping. There's no gray area that's allowed. And so they, they took Christian truths and they recast them in the image their Gnostic philosophy demanded. Which played out as them living lives of complete debauchery, all kinds of immorality. Because if the spiritual realm really matters and the material world is meaningless then the things done in the body are inconsequential. It also resulted in a theology that denied the incarnate Jesus and the risen Lord. Because God in the flesh just did not jive with Gnostic philosophy. The spiritual and the material mixing, no, that doesn't work, so we'll toss it out. These ideas and, and the, the people who lived them out created all sorts of problems. And it, and it did not reflect the, the reality, the reality of the kingdom. Rather than submit to the king, they tried to manipulate the ideas of the king and the kingdom to suit their liking. And it led people away from the one true God and the glorious, glorious gospel of his kingdom as it really is. 
And I think that's why in 1 John, John focuses so, so much on the importance of manifesting love in physical, meaningful ways. He kept returning to the theme, if God is love, then love is the sign and source of a true relationship with God. See, and you could recognize these people who were not of the kingdom because their fruit was not consistent with the love of God. They did whatever they wanted with their bodies, even if it meant harm to themselves or to others. And and this is instructive for us, okay? This is instructive for all of us. And not just like, hey, Gnostic philosophy, the Gnostic heresy, throw it out. All right? I think you're like, yeah, okay, great. It's instructive for us, like, throw out Gnostic philosophy, dualism, if that's anywhere in your world or life. Like, yeah, it's not of God, but even more than that, it's instructive because we ought to pump the brakes when any philosophy or idea diminishes your love for God or his people. If any idea or philosophy diminishes your love for God or his people, you need to think deeply about that. You need to step back from that and really evaluate it. Because there are teachings, lots of them, that foster and justify contempt, bitterness, indifference, theft, lust towards brother or sister in Christ. And if any teaching, if any influencer in your life seems to be leading towards those things in any way, seems to justify them for you or help you justify them or encourage it, it's probably not of God. And you really need to think about it and ask the Lord, weed this out of me. Weed what's not of you out of me, Lord. So we've got these people that John's writing to, right? And they've got these other people there who've been teaching these destructive things. And, and what is John's advice to the church, to the people he's writing to? Well, John doesn't linger on the people who are teaching and espousing the, these anti-Christ-like ideas. He doesn't devote time and energy to attacking them personally. Rather, he seeks to build up the church. He points them to Jesus. He points them to Jesus. It makes me think of Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is the spirit of the Antichrist that we battle. It is the spirit. A little side note here, I guess. I just think it's so important. There are so many people... For me, (laughs) that it is tempting and easy to justify my contempt for them, my condemnation of them. Oh, they're bad. They're real bad. God is against them. And I got to tell you, he's not. He was for you. He's for them too. He might be against the things that they do that contradict his kingdom, but he's still for them. And so we ought to be too. We ought to oppose those things that are not of him, but love the things he loves, which is the people that he's created, no matter who they are. We got to root for them. That's why I love like in Romans where it's like, pray for your leaders and like all throughout all of history, like including when he wrote it, people are like, what? Are you kidding me? That person's ruining my life and the life of many others. And, and like, okay, we have presidents, we have senate, we have all these things all these years. But think of like Nero. If you don't know who that is, he was a Roman emperor, real bad guy. Like, real bad. <laughs> like, killed so many people. Think of Stalin. Pray for that guy? Why should I pray for that guy? Because what a testimony would it be if he turned to Jesus? And that's ultimately what God longs for. He wants hearts to turn to him and receive him as king and to give up their own kingship to take his on. Pray, because you never know what will happen if you do. 
It is the spirit of the Antichrist that we battle against. And how does John battle it as he writes to these people? By pointing people back to Jesus, back to relationship with God and life in the spirit. John focuses on those who remain in the church rather than personally attacking those who are undermining it, and he firms them in ways that, that, that will reestablish their spiritual self-esteem, calling them to remember what makes them who they are. He continues in verse 20. He writes this. But you, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. But as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And in and and this is what he promised us. He promised us eternal life. So he encourages the readers. You already know the truth. And you already know the first test for sorting out what is true and what isn't. What is of the kingdom and what is not. And that's simple. Do they acknowledge Jesus as the Christ? If not, then they're not of the kingdom. Don't be led astray by them. He says, these truths you were given from the beginning, do not forsake them, for God will deliver on what he has promised, and he has promised eternal life. He's a man of his word. Amen? Amen. He continues in verse 26. He writes this. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And as for you... The anointing you receive from him remains in you. That anointing is the Holy Spirit. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John reminds them of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So tonight I want to remind you of the gift of the Holy Spirit. In his gospel, John recalls Jesus telling the disciples, telling him and his other buddies about the Holy Spirit. And, and surely there's like a hyperlink between this passage we just read and what's written in John 16, what Jesus shares in John 16. So let me read it for you. And this is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to the disciples about the Holy Spirit. And he says this, I, Jesus, have more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he makes known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he makes known to you. So if we look back at verses 26 through 28, we can see that there's a, a link here between these two passages, between what John himself heard Jesus say about the Holy Spirit and what he's now encouraging these believers with. We see that John is reminding them, lean into the Holy Spirit. He's reminding them and calling them to cultivate a sensitive heart to the Spirit's leading as a means for discerning which teachings are of God and which are not. He's saying, continue, continue to abide in God just as the Spirit teaches one to do. For from the Spirit you will be strengthened and given confidence. Of course, this aligns with what Jesus just said, right? What we just read. To be sensitive to the Spirit is a process that many of us aren't patient enough to engage in. 
It's quiet. It's slow. It's one step at a time. It's a whole lot of trust. And some mistakes. But it's worth doing. We need to learn the ways of the Spirit. It's one of the tools he gave us for power, but also for protection, for transformation, but also that we might not be swayed, be pushed around, be driven off of what really is true. John continues in verse 29. He says, if you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, God, you will know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, this is the second test, which will be expanded upon a lot as we continue in this book of 1 John. I mean, we're just in chapter 2. There's five of them, so we got some more room to go. And he really spends a lot of time on this in the chapters that are ahead. In essence, he's saying, look, just like Jesus did, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. If God and his son Jesus are righteous, then you will know those who are born of him. Those who participate in the kingdom because they too are righteous. All of this, all of this is an encouragement and clarification for a people who are navigating the perils of controversy and conflict in their church. This, this destructive burden is present in the church because of the teachings from people who John calls antichrist. Elsewhere in the epistles, they're called false teachers. And as Christianity has spread throughout the world, throughout the millennia, and made it all the way to today, individuals have often shared their interpretations of Scripture. And some ideas, some interpretations, some observations have been a great blessing to the church, a magnificent blessing to the church, enriching it, contextualizing the message of the kingdom of God in new ways for different people. But others have distorted the true teachings of Jesus. They corrupt the truth of God's kingdom as it testifies to God through his people. People who do that are false teachers. If it doesn't align with his word and with his spirit, it's not of God. It's false. It's untrue. Don't receive it. Like false teachers are with us. They're still here on this planet. And each of us must carefully discern whom to listen to. We must evaluate new ideas by testing them against Scripture, right? Against this thing. With the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of the fruit displayed in the lives of, the, of those who espouse the ideas. Like, you gotta know this thing. You gotta know it enough to know what's not of it. Take the time to do so. It's worth it. And guess what? It's not just for you. It's for the sake of others. That his kingdom might manifest through you and impact others. Even in the kingdom, it's not about you. It's about taking it on so others may see it. That this world may be better. Know this thing. Know this thing. Because if you don't, you don't know, no, you don't know what's not of it. And secondly, you got to be in prayer. You gotta be sensitizing yourself to the, the, the whispers of the Holy Spirit. And get a big part of that's like life in the body. Like Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am. The Holy Spirit, boom, I'm there. We gotta be a part of this body. We gotta be familiar enough with the Holy Spirit's prompting and teaching to follow it. That takes time. It's worth it. Again, not just for you, but for this whole world and all the people you love. That more of God's kingdom, his love, his justice, his peace, his beauty, his righteousness, his joy, his joy would be oozing out of you into all the other sponges that you're near. 
We need to be a people of the kingdom, desiring, hungering for more of him on this earth and in our life. And so I want to leave you tonight with two questions. And the first one is this. Do the philosophies or influencers that guide your life align with the gospel of the kingdom of God as revealed in the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit? Do the philosophies or influencers that guide your life align with the gospel of the kingdom of God as revealed in the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit? Now, in this moment where you just heard that and you're thinking about it, I want to encourage you, that's not enough time. So take this question home and take it before the Lord. Take time to linger and let him reveal what's really there. We need help sometimes. You need him, and sometimes you might need others. Maybe discuss it with other people. Talk about it. What do you see in my life? Are there thoughts that don't drive with who God really is? Help me, help me, and also be willing to be that person for someone else, to go to this thing together and be like, I don't know. Huh. Like that's the, that for me, that was the most impactful thing in my life. When, when I, I worked at this boat factory, I'm going to tell you a story, part of my life, all right. So I worked at this boat factory here in Westlake. Anybody know of Electrocraft boats? Yeah, they're all over Westlake Lake. I worked there, actually. I worked in the parts department. I helped build boats, sort of, mostly. I just took little lights and like would take 500 of them and like put a clip on it and put it over there. <laughs> I'm building boats. All right. It's a pretty glamorous job, but I had a buddy who also worked there, but he actually wasn't my buddy. He was just a guy. We were in, in school, and so we would come after hours to the factory, and we would work together sometimes at night in this factory, and I'm at one side doing this thing, you know, putting little pieces together over and over, and he's on the other side of the factory, like, measuring out wire and putting it in the right places so it could then be put in the boat, and, and we'd just yell back and forth across the factory, Hey, what do you think about this? I read the other day in Ephesians about armor. I did not understand. What do you think about that? And we'd, we'd just talk. And I got to be honest, our ignorance was very significant. <laughs> but you know what the beautiful thing is? We received one, each other, one another and we worked on it together. And sometimes we'd sit outside after our shift was over at like midnight and we'd be sitting over the roof of his car with our Bibles out because we couldn't do that while we're like, you know, doing this over and over and just reading and being like, but what does this mean? What do we do with it? How does that, what does that actually mean for me and you in this world? Like, what does that look like? And we'd work through it together. And man, God used that friend. His name is Josh. He used that friend to turn my life around, to bring me into the kingdom in ways I'd never known before. And I know that God did that with me in Josh's life too. And we were two like goofballs, man. We knew nothing. But we were curious and eager and we had someone to do it with. We were willing to risk. Jesus continued to secure us more and more that we might risk more and more with one another. And that was fruitful. I mean, look at me now. God used that little moment and he used Josh to put me in a place and put me on a trajectory that somehow I'm here. That is weird. But somehow God is using me in a way with things he taught me back then to somehow expand it to you. I am unworthy of that, but God is good. And who knows what he's going to do with you? Who knows? Engage with others. Engage with his word long for the kingdom to be manifest in you. And man, it'll blow, it'll blow your mind. The greatest adventure in all the world is to follow God. And you don't even have to leave your chair. Don't miss out on it. Let's do something weird. <laughs> okay. Let's all stand. We're going to pray together. Uh, oh, yeah. Hey, band, if you guys want to make your way up, I forgot about that. Yeah. So we're going to do something odd.
kind of, I don't know, maybe this isn't really that odd. Anybody been to a wedding? Yeah, yeah. And you know that weird moment, which by the way, if you're not married, which some of you are, some of you aren't, um, the reason that it goes like um, the pastor saying to like, whatever, Tom, like, all right, Tom, repeat after me. I take you, Darla. And he goes like, I take you, Darla. It's because like in the moment, it's like, <laughs> so you need that help. You need that assistance. And so we're going to do a little repeat after me prayer together right now. You guys up for that? Like talking out loud? Yeah. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> There's some real enthusiasm about that. I appreciate it. Thank you. So repeat after me. And let's pray together as a church, as a body, as a community of people who long to see God's kingdom manifest in this earth through us and in us. All right, repeat after me. Mighty God, King of the universe, You sent the Son to this earth to fulfill all your good promises. Let me, Lord, embrace Jesus so fully and completely. That the truth of his reality comes pouring out of me in every area of my life. Benefiting and blessing this world with the light of your glory. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. In earth as it is on heaven. I said I messed that up. On earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> we got it together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Thank you guys for participating. Yeah. He is good. Thank you, Rob. Um, as we enter into this time of worship, I want to encourage you. Anybody else think this room is like oddly huge? Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. There's something unique about the church. When we come together and unite like sponges, <laughs> to manifest this kingdom. And that happens in unique, a very unique and mysterious, truly mysterious way when we sing praise to the Lord, when we worship him and declare the truths together of who he is. And so I want to encourage you in an odd way, if you're willing to maybe come a little closer, move a little closer to that group who's like five aisles over, that we might physically manifest in this moment the unity that we have spiritually. Amen? So, you can move now. <laughs> Let's sing to the Lord. <laughs> 